Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is um, January the 5th, 2022. I'm talking to you, as always, from San Francisco on the west coast of the United States. It's mid-morning here. I'm not sure what the time is in uh, in China. It's probably a late afternoon, early evening in China. Um, and um, I'm not sure how many people are watching it, but certainly uh, from China. we I know we have some viewers from China. Uh, this is a show. We're, we're having a show today about China, China in 2022, the nature of Chinese capitalism the morality or immorality of the Chinese political and economic system. The headlines today and in early 2022 are about China are unpredictable. The Wall Street Journal suggests, uh, talks about China's um, unpredictability. It's heavy-handed governance threatens growth. In other words, this rather problematic relationship between politics and economics in China, which is an age-old thing, which has elicited so much debate and concern in the West and in China itself, uh, remains a reality. Uh, this has manifested itself today in uh, a town called Dejian, uh, which has been locked down as a consequence of COVID, leaving 13 million people stranded, again, according uh, to the journal. Uh, the post comes in also on Jian, suggesting uh, tales of anguish uh, as a consequence of this lockdown of the perhaps heavy-handed nature of the uh, Chinese government. There's a lot of concern about the long-term viability of the Chinese system, of Chinese economics. Uh, the FT notes that Chinese banks are cutting back on traditional lending as concerns over the economy. And it's not just the concerns over the economy, it's the political system, perhaps, or this relationship between politics and economics mounts. Uh, meanwhile, in the midst of all this, uh, Tesla, very much of a West Coast uh, American tech company, even though they've moved now to Texas, is opening a dealership in Xinjiang, um, drawing accusations from this headline in the New York Times that Tesla is helping China cover up genocide. Now, of course, uh, Teslas are not made in China. Uh, they're made in the United States. But I thought uh, to kick off our discussion today with the author of a new book, Made in China, Amelia Pang. Uh, Amelia is joining us from uh, a suburb of Washington, D.C., that uh, she might weigh in on Tesla's decision to open a showroom in Jiang, uh, uh, Amelia, welcome to Keenon. What are your thoughts on uh, on this latest um, chapter uh, of, of Tesla's attempt um, to sell their cars in China? Well, thank you so much for having me. Um, I think the decision to open a so showroom in Xinjiang is troubling because during a time when a lot of companies are pulling out of that region. Um, due to the, especially the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act that just passed and got signed into law. Um, it's a really sensitive area to be doing business with. And I'd push Elon Musk to 
respond and address the human rights issues. Uh, I don't know how easy it is to push Elon Musk around. Uh, you mentioned uh, Jing uh, Jiang. Um, it's a part of China in the north uh, eastern part. Perhaps you might say something about it. It's central to your identity and also, I think, to your book, Made in China. What, what is the significance of this region in terms of your moral critique of Chinese capitalism? Right. Uh, well, it's actually in northwestern China. I apologize. Yeah, northwestern China. No worries. Um, China is very big, and so well, I, even I should be able to distinguish my north and my 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 west and my east. I still struggle also to distinguish between left and right. But uh, certainly, uh, as you say, it's um, uh, it's uh, northwestern part of China. It's okay. It's a common mistake. Um, so I'm part Han Chinese and part Uyghurs. Uh, the Uyghurs are a Turkic minority living primarily in northwestern China in Xinjiang. Uh, Xinjiang actually means, the direct translation in Chinese means new frontier, new frontier of China. It's very much um, a very co colonialist language that we're using here when we say Xinjiang. A lot of Uyghurs prefer to say East Turkestan, um, which was the original name of that region. Um, so Xinjiang is, or East Turkestan, is responsible for 20% of the global cotton supply. They produce a lot of tomatoes um, and, and have all kinds of manufacturing facilities there. Uh, and in recent years, there's been a lot of troubling evidence that the Uyghurs and other Turkic minorities like Kazakhs um, are being rounded up into these camps. Um, China has had forced labor camps for decades, but these are really the worst iteration of these camps. There's where you're targeting one specific ethnic group. Um, the conditions are pretty egregious. There's widespread torture, sexual violence, um, starvation, forced sterilization, and in a lot of these camps, they're forced to manufacture goods for us. So that's why the US government has decided to ban all imports from this particular region because the risk of forced labor is so high. Um, so during a time when companies are rethinking whether they wanna do business in Xinjiang, um, it, it may not be the very good time for Elon Musk to decide to open a showroom there. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's very strange timing. Another headline this morning, which I didn't include, um, which might be relevant in terms of how this part of the world is increasingly becoming uh, an, an important political story, is the political unrest in Kazakhstan. I was in Kazakhstan actually late last year, and I found it a very surreal experience. Is there connection, um, Amelia, do you think, between the political instability and the what seems to be at least a people's uprising in Kazakhstan against um, an unaccountable elite and some of the things that are happening um, in uh, Xinjiang? I wouldn't say that's a huge factor. Um, the crackdown on the Uyghurs in the Xinjiang region began um, after a few very small scale protests. Um, the, the, the Uyghurs in China are brown people, they're darker skinned and They've experienced um, life as second-class second citizens for decades, and um, occasionally there will be small uprisings in the region. Um, it, what's, what's, other, what's also contributing to the crackdown is that in recent years, 
Um, have you heard of the Belt and Road Initiative? Yes. Yeah, it's a tr trillion dollar economic development strategy. It's a sort of a colonial strategy on the part of the central Chinese government. Yeah, yeah. It connects China to the Middle East, West Asia and Europe through these China funded bridges, 5G networks. Um, it's, it's a really critical major transportation hub. And uh, one huge part of that, of the Belt and Road Initiative goes through Xinjiang. So China can't have any uprisings in that region. It's because they've invested so much money into the success of the Belt and Road Initiative. So that once the, the Belt and Road Initiative took off, um, that you really saw a huge crackdown on the Uyghurs. Uh the Uyghurs are central to your identity. You wrote a very moving piece for the New York Times uh, this time last year. Uh, took a genocide for me to remember my Uyghur roots. I want to talk a little bit about that piece in, in the context of your book as well. But what are the, the foundations of, at least in your mind, Chinese persecution of Uyghurs? You noted that the Uyghur people look differently from traditional Chinese. Is it a racism? Or is it something more complex than that? I think there's definitely a strain of racism, but also it's part of having, I would say the main reason is that the Chinese government wants to have a very central and unified identity for, for everyone living in China to identify with the Chinese state to feel patriotism towards the Chinese state. But is that an ethnic identity or a political or a cultural one? All of the above. Um, the Uyghurs in these camps are forced to learn Chinese. They're forced to sing patriotic songs about China. They're forced to really renounce anything that's culturally traditional for their heritage. In your New York piece, um, I'm quoting you here, it was a very moving piece from last year. Uh, you write, the first time I truly realized I was Uyghur was just three years ago when I saw the now infamous viral photo of rows of Turkic men in dark blue uniforms sitting in a concentration camp in Hotang, Xinjiang, a so-called Uyghur autonomous region in China. Uh, scanning the prisoners' despondent faces, I was startled by their familiar features. Prominent cheekbones, round eyes, aquiline noses. My face was theirs. What's your story, Amelia? What, um, were you not brought... I mean, you obviously were brought up in the United States or you spent a lot of your time in, this, in the United States. Were you not brought up as a Uyghur? No. Um, my grandmother was half Uyghur. Um, she knew how to speak the language. She um, knew the culture, but that identity and culture wasn't really passed down in my family um, within just one generation that was kind of completely lost. Um, I have some cousins and uncles that look actually more Uyghur than they do Chinese, um, some that look more Chinese than they do Uyghur, um, but the ones who have darker skin and maybe uh, bigger noses, um, they, they don't know, people like me, we don't know anything about the Uyghur culture growing up. Um, even in the US, we've always just identified as Han Chinese. Um, I remember going to Chinese school on Sundays in the US, um, which is more of, it's, it's just a program for Chinese American kids to, to learn the language and learn the culture. And I remember being surrounded by 
all Chinese people or Taiwanese people with, you know, East Asian features and just always felt like an outcast because I didn't look like them. I looked very, very different from them. And it was only in recent years after being more aware of what's happening to the Uyghurs um, that I, I realized why. I want to talk about your your new book, Made in China, and we'll do that actually more specifically after the break. But do you think you're, and, and you become one of the more vocal and articulate and important critics, I think, of Chinese capitalism in the United States, to what extent is that critique driven by your sense of injustice as a Uyghur? Um... I, I wouldn't say it's driven by that because that's a relatively. And I'm not, it, it's not an accusation. I'm just curious. Um, probably not. A, I, I've always critiqued China's hyper-capitalism um, even before I came back in touch with my Uyghur identity. And what about the issue of uh, Islam? Whenever the, the Uyghur, the, the BBC famously asks, who are the Uyghurs and why is China being accused of, of genocide? Whenever Uyghurs, or often when the Uyghurs are mentioned in the Western media, they're described as Muslim. Is that true? Are all Uyghurs Muslim? Not all are Muslims. I've, I've heard Uyghurs say they prefer not prefer not to be referred to as Muslims because they're more than just Muslims. They're 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 Uyghurs. Um, they but they are people of Turkish descent, and they're also distinguished by their nomadic origins. We've we've done a number of different shows on. Uh, different kinds of nomadic peoples, the indigenous peoples of North America. We did something on the Bering Strait. Um, how much, um, how, in terms of making sense of the Uyghurs, of identifying their culture and perhaps their role in the world, how much is those nomadic origins, how, how, how important are they, do you think? Um, yes, I think that is very important to them. And it's probably the least of their troubles right now, not being able to access the, the nomadic part of their culture. Well, I'm speaking with um, Amelia Pang. She's the author of uh, Made in China, A Prisoner, An SOS Letter, and The Hidden Cost of America's Cheap Goods. It's um, an important and very convincing, I think, critique of Chinese authoritarian capitalism, of its in inhumanity and its injustice. Uh, after the break, I want to come back, Amelia, and I want to talk specifically about the break, uh, about the book. So we'll we'll be back in about sixty seconds and talk about the book itself. Hard on, everyone. Hi, everyone. Andrew here again. I'm not sure if you're listening or watching or even reading about this Keenon show. I certainly hope you're enjoying it. But I wanted to remind you that there are many different ways you can use to enjoy my Keenon show. The first, of course, is by, in a very traditional way, subscribing to the audio-only podcast. You can do this um, using Apple or Spotify or CastBox or many of the other traditional uh, podcast distribution platforms. We're on all of them. And if you want to access uh, all the podcasts together, you can go to my LitHub page um, in their podcast section, which is dedicated to all the interviews. 
if you're into watching this as opposed to simply listening, um, if you follow me on Twitter at AJ Keen, you can watch these shows live uh, and you can do the same um, if we're connected uh, on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not a great fan of Facebook, but LitHub is. And on their LitHub live page, you can watch these shows live as well. Um, in terms of uh, recorded videos, uh, not live, you can see all the shows on the LitHub YouTube page. So whatever your preference, whatever your taste, whether it's video or audio or text, there's no excuse for not watching or listening to my show. Now back to Keynote. We are back with Amelia Pang, the author of Made in China, a really important new book, uh, A Prisoner, an SOS Letter, and The Hidden Cost of America's Cheap Goods. We are all beneficiaries of those cheap goods. So this is a very emotional read. Um, Amelia, tell me why and how you wrote this book. It's, 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 um, it's becoming one of the the great arguments, I think, against Chinese authoritarian capitalism. Thank you for that. Um, well, actually, my book starts in October 2012, when Julie Keith, an American suburban mom with two small kids, was looking for Halloween decorations in her storage shed. She came across this unopened package of Halloween gravestones she had received as a gift some time ago. Someone had gotten it from Kmart. Um, it was on clearance. It was so incredibly cheap. And that was kind of the only reason that it was purchased. No one had a need for it. Uh, Julie didn't have a need for it. It sat in her storage shed after she received it. And um, she, by the time Halloween came around again the following year, she didn't even open it then because she forgot about it. Um, so it was really two years later that she come across it again. And she was shocked to find an SOS letter inside written by the forced laborer who had made and packaged this specific product. It was a cry for help. He was, he talked about how he was starved. He was tortured. He had to work 15 to 20 hours a day, seven days a week. And the forced laborers at this camp were paid less than $2 a month to manufacture all these products. Um, as it turns out, uh, the author of this note was one of millions of forced laborers in China manufacturing all kinds of products for the global supply chain. Um, so this book tries to put a face uh, to, to these invis otherwise invisible forced laborers, tell their stories, how they got there, um, their experiences in the camp, and how a lack of corporate accountability and some really flawed factory audits um, allow these types of products to come into our stores all the time. Uh, Amelia, we're all, as I said, beneficiaries of cheap Chinese goods. How much of Chinese capitalism, how much of the manufacturing base of China are made up of these basically forced labor camps? How much of the stuff coming out of China is made essentially by prisoners who aren't paid for their labor and don't have any choice about whether they can or can't work in these factories? Well, I would say 
it's a relatively small percentage. Most factories in China are, are regular factories, not affiliated with prison camps. Um, but the pr the prison camps um, are very. It's very easy for regular factories to subcontract some of the work to these camps, um, and that's what this book is about: how that subcontracting works and how corporations. American corporations don't even really try to find out where they're subcontracting to. Um, and, and, you know, we talked a lot about the, the, the Uyghur genocide and, and the Uyghur camps, um, but this is an issue that didn't start with the Uyghurs. Um, my book talks about how these camps have existed for decades, um, really ever since uh, the, the late 1930s was the first iteration of these camps. Um, and over the years, with each with China's each major economic leap, you, you saw a, grow, a growth in these types of facilities, in these forced labor facilities. Um, so they've definitely contributed to, to China's rise um, and ultimately leading to the worst iteration of these camps, which are the ones that are currently holding Uyghurs. So uh, your, your work has been acclaimed, the book has been acclaimed, it was shortlisted for uh a number of prizes. I'm sure it's going to win some of those awards. Some of your critics have suggested that um, buying stuff from China is akin to buying cotton from 19th century America and America uh, of slavery. Do you think that, what are the historical analogies? Is it the, the America of slavery? Is it the Third Reich producing stuff during the Second World War? What, what, what historical analogies make sense in terms of the nature of Chinese capitalism? Um, I would say comparing to the Soviet gulags would make the most sense because these camps were originally based off of Soviet gulags. That's what they were inspired by. Um, they've been, they're a very convenient tool for helping the Chinese government silence dissent, um, kind of hide groups that they don't really want to be seen in society. Yeah, that's interesting. When I was in, I mentioned earlier that I was in uh, Kazakhstan last year. Uh, I visited uh, um, a former gulag outside Nur Sultan wow. for, for, for women, actually, um, sort of being used, I guess, to to um, to, to, to underline progress. Uh, what about the role of, of, of women in all this? Are they particularly victimized in these camps? Um, there are definitely women camps that are very, very disturbing, a lot of sexual violence and rape. Um, in the Uyghur camps, you're hearing uh, survivors talk about how um, they're, they're sold as sex slaves. What can we do, Amelia, then? Um, there may be some debate about some of the things you say in, in the book, but I don't think one can deny that there are elements of Chinese capitalism which are, are deeply disturbing, profoundly immoral. I don't, I don't think anyone would argue that. Should we simply refuse to buy anything from China? Do, do we need regulation on Chinese imports? Or do consumers need to activate their moral compasses in choosing not to buy uh, cheap goods from China? That's a really complicated question. And I think what I can say is if it's no longer so lucrative for the Chinese authoritarian government to open these camps and have the forced laborers in these camps export goods all over the world, 
um, then they will have less of an incentive to round so many people up and use them as free labor. Um, and I think that to make a change that's actually in our hands, I think we have to push our corporations to be more accountable. Um, consumers so the Teslas of the world, obviously. Yeah. Not only the Teslas of the world, but also just ask when whatever store that you like to shop from, your favorite brand, um, take a look at their, their website, at the ethics page, um, corporate accountability page, right? Every social consumer, social responsibility page. Um, and they'll usually say what's their policy on forced labor. Um, and they might even say whether they're still sourcing um, cotton from the Uyghur region or not. And just take a, take a moment to understand what they say. And I think the problem with most of these um, statements is that they don't provide any real information about what kind of audits they conduct. What what did they, what are they doing to ensure their factories are not subcontracting to egregious forced labor facilities? And if we can have more traceability and more accountability, I think that's the start to to limiting some of these camps. Wouldn't we be lost, Amelia, though, without goods, cheap goods? produced in China, none of us would have our iPhones, our computers, at the very minimum. Yeah, I, I wouldn't say that we need to completely pull out of China, though there's, there's definitely a camp of people who are pushing for that. Um, I think there are still good factories, there's still decent factories that want to do the right thing. Um, but if our corporations are offering prices so low that the company, that the factories cannot realistically make these products without outsourcing them to them, pretty dark places like labor camps um, where the workers make manufacture the products for free, um, then that is that plays a role. Um, that's about corporate accountability. And I think that's where it needs to start. What about big American tech companies like Apple that seem to be willing to bend over backwards to make the Chinese government happy, make various compromises in terms of production and trade deals and certainly in, in, on a moral criteria should companies and, and, and I'm not singling out Apple although they tend to uh, be less criticized than some of the other big tech companies uh, on the west coast like Facebook should Apple be more moral in their dealings with with China it's interesting you brought up Apple. Um, actually, during my reporting in China in early 2019, I went to visit some of these forced labor facilities, not only in the Uyghur region, but in, in other parts of the of the country. Um, and since it is not illegal for domestic Chinese companies to source from these facilities, um, the guards thought I was someone from one of these companies and welcomed me to buy from these camps. They talked about what they manufactured in the camps. And um, they openly called these facilities prisons. Um, and I spent some time following the trucks that left these facilities and to see which exporters they were working with. And one actually traveled to um, an official Apple supplier. Um, and when I reached out to Apple about if they have any concerns that one of their official suppliers has a relationship with the known forced labor facility, um, they, they, they just said that they have very strict audits. Um, they don't believe that this factory is using forced labor, but they've provided no information about what they're doing exactly to keep forced labor out of the supply chain. And I, I find that very troubling. Amelia, you, uh, you compared the, the, the current system of forced labor camps in China to the Soviet gulag system. Soviet Union was, of course, 
eventually brought down uh, by, at least in part, by popular demonstrations against it, partly, I think, because of the injustice of the gulags and the other way in which many people were persecuted and murdered by the regime over over 70 or 80 years. Um, what's your sense? As you said, you've, you've done some journalism in China. What's your sense of uh, popular discontent with Chinese with the with these inhumane uh, systems of production within China itself. Um, you know, have you ever wondered why there hasn't been any major protests since 1989, the Tiananmen Square massacres? I mean, for one, the the government has really cracked down, and it's it's a lot harder for these grassroots movements to take off. But for two, I think the and the attitude for a lot of modern Chinese people today is that as long as their economic stability, um, we're kind of willing to put up with some of the rights abuses. Um, but as we're seeing China enter some different difficult economic times, um, it, that that may soon change. It remains to be seen. As you say, uh, China is now unpredictable. How much of this problem is associated with? the current leadership and the cult of personality that seems to be being built around it. Do you think there's a need for a fundamental change of regime or is it simply um, a, a, a need to, to recalibrate the kind of leadership being produced by this regime? Um, right. I would say Xi Jinping's lifelong um, rule is going, it is it's extremely problematic and will, as we've seen, we already see we're already seeing human rights um, taking a very negative turn under his rule. Um, ultimately, I don't know if having him step down or having another political leader step up will dramatically improve things. I do think we need to see um, a democracy in China. We already talked about technology, the moral responsibility of big tech companies like. Uh, Tesla and Apple to acknowledge injustice in China. What about the role of tech in the kind of surveillance authoritarian capitalism that is being built by the regime? We had Shoshana Zuboff on the show a couple of years ago. Uh, she, of course, has a famous book, The Age of Surveillance Capitalism. That surveillance capitalism seems to be being perfected in China. Um, is is technology the heart of uh, the world that you report on in made in China a surveillance technology technology advanced AI enabled big data um, technology that the, the, that's definitely contributing to the problem um, in the Uyghur region specifically um, you can the the cameras can see if some a particular person, didn't attend um, national a patriotic flag raising ceremony, and that person will get called to the police and possibly sent to the camps if they didn't go to their ceremony. Um, that that's the level of tracking that uh, China is capable of doing now, um, and it's changing at a pretty rapid pace. Pretty rapid pace. Um, when I went to China in early 2019, I was relatively unknown. I didn't have many Twitter followers, so. I wasn't tracked in their system and I could um, enter unmonitored and, um, you know, do reporting there and not get stopped. Um, 
it used to be that people with few followers really weren't tracked. They kind of targeted the big fish, the, the, the more famous critics. Um, that's no longer the case with the amount of data that they have. Um, even just people living, people of Chinese descent living outside of China with as few as 100 Twitter followers tweeting some criticism of the Chinese regime. Um, the Chinese government cannot find out who they are. There's a great New York Times piece about this. Mm. Um, yeah, I read it. Family <laughs> and um, have their family call them and say, hey, you know, we want you to stop tweeting or have a call from the Chinese police and say, hey, this Twitter account you have is inappropriate. We know it's you. So that's a very chilling development um, that has been enabled by big data. Has there been much response to your book in, in terms of overseas Chinese communities, the response of the Chinese government to your to your Made in China book? Um, I, I think so. I think we've, we're seeing a lot of consumers um, wanting to know more about where their products are coming from and what their brands are actually doing to, to keep forced labor out of the supply chain. And so Made in China is ultimately about the small actionable steps you can take to hold your hold your brands accountable. And very briefly, Amelia, to, to, to conclude, perhaps you might remind our viewers of these, of what people can actually do uh, to, to, to counter the immoral kind of surveillance capitalism being uh, developed in China. We can ask our brands to disclose the kind of audits they conduct. Um, and just maybe we should just counter capitalism in general. Like, think about uh, before I buy something, can I buy this used? Do I already own something that serves the same purpose? Um, why do I even want this item and what else I can do with this money? These are simple questions we can ask to kind of reduce our impulse purchases, which are, I believe, contributing to the massive rate that all of these cheap and sometimes completely pointless products are manufactured. And at the rate and the cheapness of how they're manufactured, there's definitely a lot of subcontracting to forced labor facilities that happens in the process. It's very chilling. It's Orwellian or it's a sort of um, a remixing of Orwell for the 21st century outlined in Amelia Pang's new book, Made in China, A Prisoner, An SOS Letter and the Hidden Cost of America's Cheap Goods. I guarantee anyone who read it will not buy cheap goods again, uh, at least in a comfortable way. Amelia, in addition to your book, hopefully that book was not manufactured in China. Most books aren't manufactured in China. What else should people be reading in early 2022? Um, well, this book was published last year, but I loved it so much. I still want to recommend it. It's called Land of Big Numbers by Ping Chen. She's a New Yorker writer. It's a book of fiction and it tells these beautiful, powerful tales about um, people in China. And, it, and it's a really um, smart commentary about some of the problems in modern contemporary Chinese society. Well, your book uh, is equally smart, made in China, A Prisoner, an SOS Letter, and the Hidden Cost of America's Cheap Goods by Amelia Pang. It's a brave book, an important book. Congratulations, Amelia. Thank Happy, you. healthy New Year. And I'd love to have you back on the show to talk more about China. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Andrew.